Chapter Six of Run to Earth, a novel, by Mary Elizabeth Braddon. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Gail Mattern. Chapter Six, Old Robin Gray. A year and some months had passed, and the midsummer sunlight shone upon the woods around Raynham Castle. It was a grand pile of buildings, blackened by the darkening hand of time. At one end, Norman towers loomed round and grim. At another extremity, the light tracery of a Gothic era was visible in window and archway, turret and tower. The centre had been rebuilt in the reign of Henry the Eighth, and a long range of noble Tudor windows looked out upon the broad terrace beyond which there was a garden or pleasance sloping down to the park. In the centre of this long façade, there was an archway opening into a stone quadrangle, where a fountain played perpetually in a marble basin. This was Raynham Castle, and all the woods and pastures, as far as the eye could reach, and far beyond the reach of any human eye, belonged to the castle estate. This was the fair domain of which Reginald Eversleigh had been for years the acknowledged heir, and which his own folly and dishonour had forfeited. Now all was changed. There was not a peasant in Raynham Village who had not as much right to enter the castle, and as good a chance of welcome, as he who had once been acknowledged heir to that proud domain. It was scarcely strange if Reginald Eversleigh felt this bitter change very keenly. He had placed himself entirely in the hands of his friend and adviser, Victor Carrington, he had sold out of the cavalry regiment, and had taken up his abode in a modest lodging, situated in a small street at the west end of London. Here he had tried to live quietly, according to his friend's advice, but he was too much the slave of his own follies and vices to endure a quiet existence. The sale of his commission made him rich for the time being, and so long as his money lasted he pursued the old course, betting, playing billiards, haunting all the aristocratic temples of folly and dissipation, but, at the worst, conducting himself with greater caution than he had done of old, and always allowing himself to be held somewhat in check by his prudent ally and counsellor. "'Enjoy yourself as much as you please, my dear Reginald,' said Victor Carrington. "'But take care that your little follies don't reach the ears of your uncle. Remember, I count upon your being reconciled to him before the year is out. That will never be, answered Mr. Eversleigh, with a tone of sullen despair. I am utterly ruined, Carrington. It's no use trying to shirk the truth. I am a doomed wretch, a beggar for life, and the sooner I throw myself over one of the bridges and make an end of my miserable existence, the better. According to Millard's account, my uncle's infatuation for that singing girl grows stronger and stronger. Not a week now passes without his visiting the school where the young adventuress is finishing her education. As sure as fate, it will end by his marrying her, and the street ballad singer will be my Lady Eversleigh. And when she is my Lady Eversleigh, it must be our business to step between her and the Eversleigh estates, answered Victor quietly. I told you that your uncle's marriage would be an unlucky thing for you, but I never told you that it would put an end to your chances. I think, from what Millard tells us, there is very little doubt Sir Oswald will make a fool of himself by marrying this girl. 
If he does, we must set our wits to work to prevent his leaving her his fortune. She is utterly friendless and obscure, so he is not likely to make any settlement upon her. And for the rest, a man of fifty who marries a girl of nineteen is very apt to repent of his folly. It must be our business to make your uncle repent very soon after he has taken the final step. I don't understand you, Carrington. My dear Eversleigh, you very seldom do understand me, answered the surgeon in that half-contemptuous tone in which he was apt to address his friend. But that is not of the smallest consequence. Only do what I tell you and leave the rest to me. You shall be lord of Raynham Castle yet, if my wits are good for anything. A year had elapsed, which had been passed by Sir Oswald between Raynham Castle and Arlington Street, and during which he had paid more visits than he could count to the beaches. On the occasion of these visits, he only saw his protégé for about a quarter of an hour, while the stately Miss Beaumont looked on, smiling a dignified smile upon her pet pupil and the liberal patron who paid so handsomely for that pupil's education. She had always a good account to give of Sir Oswald's protégé. There never was so much talent united to so much industry, according to Miss Beaumont's report. Sometimes Sir Oswald begged to hear Miss Milford sing, and Honoria seated herself at the piano, over whose notes her white fingers seemed to have already acquired perfect command. The rich and clear soprano voice had attained new power since Sir Oswald had heard it in the moonlit marketplace. The execution of the singer improved day by day. The Italian singing-master spoke in raptures of his pupil. Never was there a finer organ or more talent. Miss Milford could not fail to create a profound impression when her musical education should be completed and she should appear before the public. But as the year drew to its close, Sir Oswald Eversleigh talked less and less of that public career for which he had destined his protégé. He no longer reminded her that on her own industry depended her future fortune. He no longer spoke in glowing terms of that brilliant pathway which lay before her. His manner was entirely changed, and he was grave and silent whenever any allusion was made by Miss Beaumont or Honoria to the future use which was to be made of that superb voice and exceptional genius. The schoolmistress remarked upon this alteration one day when talking to her pupil. "'Do you know, my dear Miss Milford, I am really inclined to believe that Sir Oswald Eversleigh has changed his mind with regard to your future career, and that he does not intend you to be an opera singer.' The first year of Honoria Milford's residence at the beaches expired, and another year began. Sir Oswald's visits became more and more frequent. When the accounts of his protégé's progress were more than usually enthusiastic, his visits were generally followed very speedily by the arrival of some costly gift for Miss Beaumont's pupil, a ring, a bracelet, a locket, always in perfect taste, and such as a young lady at a boarding-school might wear, but always of the most valuable description. Honoria Milford must have possessed a heart of stone if she had not been grateful to so noble a benefactor. She was grateful, and her gratitude was obvious to her generous protector. Her beautiful face was illuminated with an unwanted radiance when she entered the drawing-room 
where he awaited her coming, and the pleasure with which she received his brief visits was as palpable as if it had been expressed in words. It was midsummer, and Honoria Milford had been a year and a quarter at the beaches. She had acquired much during that period, new accomplishments, new graces, and her beauty had developed into fresh splendor in the calm repose of that comfortable abode. She was liked by her fellow pupils, but she had made neither friends nor confidants. The dark secrets of her past life shut her out from all intimate companionship with girls of her own age. She had, in a manner, lived a lonely life amongst all these companions, and her chief happiness had been derived from her studies. Thus it was, perhaps, that she had made double progress during her residence with the Mrs. Beaumont. One bright afternoon in June, Sir Oswald's mail phaeton and pair drove past the windows of the schoolroom. "'Visitors for Miss Milford!' exclaimed the pupils seated near the windows, as they recognized the elegant equipage. Honoria rose from her desk, awaiting the summons of the schoolroom maid. She had not long to wait. The young woman appeared at the door in a few moments, and Miss Milford was requested to go to the drawing-room. She went, and found Sir Oswald Eversleigh awaiting her alone. It was the first time that she had ever known Miss Beaumont to be absent from the reception-room, on the visit of the baronet. He rose to receive her, and took the hand which she extended towards him. "'I am alone, you see, Honoria,' he said. "'I told Miss Beaumont that I had something of a serious nature to say to you, and she left me to receive you alone.' "'Something of a serious nature?' repeated the girl, looking at her benefactor with surprise. "'Oh, I think I can guess what you are going to say,' she added after a moment's hesitation. My musical education is now sufficiently advanced for me to take some new step in the pathway which you wish me to tread. So far from wishing to hasten your musical education, I am about to entreat you to abandon all thought of a professional career. To abandon all thought of a professional career? You would ask me this, Sir Oswald? You, who have so often told me that all my hopes for the future depended on my cultivation of the art I love? "'You love your art very much, then, Honoria?' "'More than I love life itself.' "'And it would grieve you much, no doubt, "'to resign all idea of a public career, "'to abandon your dream of becoming a public singer?' "'There was a pause, and then the girl answered, "'in a dreamy tone, "'I don't know. "'I have never thought of the public. "'I have never imagined the hour "'in which I should stand before a great crowd "'as I have stood in the cruel streets.' amongst all the noise and confusion, singing to people who cared so little to hear me. I have never thought of that. I love music for its own sake, and feel as much pleasure when I sing alone in my own room as I could feel in the grandest opera-house that ever was built. And the applause, the admiration, the worship which your beauty as well as your voice would win, does the idea of resigning such intoxicating incense give you no pain, Honoria? The girl shook her head sadly. "'You forget what I was when you rescued me from the pitiless stones of the marketplace, or you would scarcely ask me such a question. I have confronted the public, not the brilliant throng of the opera-house, but the squalid crowd which gathers before the door of a gin-shop to listen to a vagrant ballad-singer. I have sung at races, where the rich and the high-born were congregated, and have received their admiration.' 
I know what it is worth, Sir Oswald. The same benefactor who throws a handful of halfpence offers an insult with his donation. Sir Oswald contemplated his protégé in silent admiration, and it was some moments before he continued the conversation. "'Will you walk with me in the garden?' he asked presently. "'That avenue of beeches is delightful, and—' "'And I think I shall be better able to say what I wish there than in this room. "'At any rate, I shall feel less afraid of interruption.' "'Honoria rose to comply with her benefactor's wish, "'with that deferential manner which she always preserved in her intercourse with him, "'and they walked out upon the velvet lawn. "'Across the lawn lay the beech avenue, "'and it was thither Sir Oswald directed his steps. "'Honoria,' he said after a silence of some duration if you knew how much doubt how much hesitation i experienced before i came here to-day how much i still question the wisdom of my coming i think you would pity me but i am here and i must needs speak plainly if i am to speak at all long ago i tried to think that my interest in your fate was only a natural impulse of charity only an ordinary tribute to gifts so far above the common I tried to think this, and I acted with the cold, calculating wisdom of a man of the world, when I marked out for you a career by which you might win distinction for yourself, and placed you in the way of following that career. I meant to spend last year upon the continent. I did not expect to see you once in twelve months. But the strange influence which possessed me in the hour of our first meeting grew stronger upon me day by day. In spite of myself, I thought of you. In spite of myself, I came here again and again to look upon your face, to hear your voice for a few brief moments, and then to go out into the world to find it darker and colder by contrast with the brightness of your beauty. Little by little, the idea of your becoming a public singer became odious to me, continued Sir Oswald. At first, I thought with pride of the success which would be yours, the worship which would be offered at your shrine but my feeling changed completely before long, and I shuddered at the image of your triumphs, for those triumphs must doubtless separate us forever. Why should I dwell upon this change of feeling? You must have already guessed the secret of my heart. Tell me that you do not despise me. Despise you, Sir Oswald? You, the noblest and most generous of men, surely you must know that I admire and reverence you for all your noble qualities, as well as for your goodness to a wretched creature like me. But, Honoria, I want something more than your esteem. Do you remember the night I first heard you singing in the marketplace on the north road? Can I ever forget that miserable night? cried the girl in a tone of surprise. The question seemed so strange to her. That bitter hour in which you came to my rescue? Do you remember the song you were singing, the last song you ever sang in the streets? Honoria Milford paused for some moments before answering. It was evident that she could not at first recall the memory of that last song. "'My brain was almost bewildered that night,' she said. "'I was so weary, so miserable. And yet, stay, I do remember the song. It was old Robin Gray.' "'Yes, Honoria. The story of an old man's love for a woman young enough to be his daughter. I was sitting by my cheerless fireside, meditating very gloomily upon the events of the day which had been a sad one for me 
when your thrilling tones stole upon my ear and roused me from my reverie. I listened to every note of that old ballad. Although those words had long been familiar to me, they seemed new and strange that night. An irresistible impulse led me to the spot where you had sunk down in your helplessness. From that hour to this, you have been the ruling influence of my life. I have loved you with a devotion which few men have power to feel. Tell me, Honoria, have I loved in vain? The happiness of my life trembles in the balance. It is for you to decide whether my existence henceforward is to be worthless to me, or whether I am to be the proudest and happiest of men. Would my love make you happy, Sir Oswald? Unutterably happy. Then it is yours. You love me? in spite of the difference between our ages? Yes, Sir Oswald, I honour and love you with all my heart, answered Honoria Milford. Whom have I seen so worthy of a woman's affection? From the first hour in which some guardian angel threw me across your pathway, what have I seen in you but nobility of soul and generosity of heart? Is it strange, therefore, if my gratitude has ripened into love? Honoria, murmured Sir Oswald, bending over the drooping head, and pressing his lips gently on the pure brow. Honoria, you have made me too happy. I can scarcely believe that this happiness is not some dream, which will melt away presently, and leave me alone and desolate, the fool of my own fancy. He led Honoria back towards the house. Even in this moment of supreme happiness, he was obliged to remember Miss Beaumont who would no doubt be lurking somewhere on the watch for her pupil. "'Then you will give up all thought of a professional career, Honoria?' said the baronet as they walked slowly back. "'I will obey you in everything.' "'My dearest girl, and when you leave this house, you will leave it as Lady Eversleigh.' Miss Beaumont was waiting in the drawing-room, and was evidently somewhat astonished by the duration of the interview between Sir Oswald and her pupil. "'You have been admiring the grounds, I see, Sir Oswald,' she said very graciously. "'It is not quite usual for a gentleman visitor and a pupil to promenade in the grounds tete-a-tete, but I suppose, in the case of a gentleman of your time of life, we must relax the severity of our rules in some measure.' The baronet bowed stiffly. A man of fifty does not care to be reminded of his time of life at the very moment when he has just been accepted as the husband of a girl of nineteen. "'It may perhaps be the last opportunity which I may have of admiring your grounds, Miss Beaumont,' he said presently, "'for I think of removing your pupil very shortly.' "'Indeed!' cried the governess, reddening with suppressed indignation. "'I trust Miss Milford has not found occasion to make any complaint.' She has enjoyed especial privileges under this roof. A separate bedroom, silver forks and spoons, roast veal or lamb on Sundays throughout the summer season, to say nothing of the most unremitting supervision of a positively maternal character. And I should really consider Miss Milford wanting in common gratitude if she had complained. You are mistaken, my dear madam. Miss Milford has uttered no word of complaint. On the contrary, I am sure she has been perfectly happy in your establishment. But changes occur every day, and an important change will, I trust, speedily occur in my life, and in that of Miss Milford. When I first proposed bringing her to you, you asked me if she was a relation, 
I told you she was distantly related to me. I hope soon to be able to say that distant relationship has been transformed into a very near one. I hope soon to call Honoria Milford my wife. The mistress of the beaches possessed a really kind heart beneath the ice of her ultra-gentility, and she was pleased with the idea of assisting in the bringing about of a genuine love-match. Besides, the affair, if well managed, would reflect considerable importance upon herself, and she would be able, by and by, to talk of my pupil, Lady Eversleigh, or that sweet girl, Miss Milford, who afterwards married the wealthy baronet, Sir Oswald Eversleigh. Sir Oswald pleaded for an early celebration of the marriage, and Honoria, accustomed to obey him in all things, did not oppose his wish in this crisis of his life. Once more, Sir Oswald wrote a check for the wardrobe of his protégé, and Miss Beaumont swelled with pomposity as she thought of the grandeur which might be derived from the expenditure of a large sum of money at certain West End emporiums, where she was in the habit of making purchases for her pupils, and where she was already considered a person of some importance. It was holiday time at the beaches, and almost all the pupils were absent. Miss Beaumont was therefore able to devote the ensuing fortnight to the delightful task of shopping. She drove into town almost every day with Honoria, and hours were spent in the choice of silks and satins, velvets and laces, and in long consultations with milliners and dressmakers of Parisian celebrity and boundless extravagance. "'Sir Oswald has entrusted me with the supervision of this most important business, and I will drop down in a fainting fit from sheer exhaustion before the counter at Howell and James's, sooner than I would fail in my duty to the extent of an iota,' Miss Beaumont said, when Honoria begged her to take less trouble about the wedding trousseau. It was Sir Oswald's wish that the wedding should be strictly private. Whom could he invite to assist at his union with a nameless and friendless bride? Miss Beaumont was the only person whom he could trust, and even her he had deceived, for she believed that Honoria Milford was some fourth or fifth cousin, some poor relative of Sir Oswald's. Early in July the wedding took place. All preparations had been made so quietly as to baffle even the penetration of the watchful Millard. He had perceived that the baronet was more than usually occupied, and in higher spirits than were habitual to him, but he could not discover the reason. "'There is something going on, sir,' he said to Victor Carrington, "'but I'm blessed if I know what it is. I dare say that young woman is at the bottom of it. I never did see my master look so well or so happy. It seems as if he was growing younger every day.' Reginald Eversleigh looked at his friend in blank despair when these tidings reached him. "'I told you I was ruined, Victor,' he said. "'And now, perhaps, you will believe me. My uncle will marry that woman.' It was only on the eve of his wedding day that Sir Oswald Eversleigh made any communication to his valet. While dressing for dinner that evening, he said quietly, "'I want my portmanteaus packed for travelling between this and two o'clock to-morrow, Millard, and you will hold yourself in readiness to accompany me. I shall post from London, starting from a house near Fulham at three o'clock. The chariot must leave here, with you and the luggage, at two. "'You are going abroad, sir?' "'No. 
I am going to North Wales for a week or two, but I do not go alone. I am going to be married tomorrow morning, Millard, and Lady Eversleigh will accompany me. Much as the probability of this marriage had been discussed in the Arlington Street household, the fact came upon Joseph Millard as a surprise. Nothing is so unwelcome to old servants as the marriage of a master who has long been a bachelor. Let the bride be never so fair, never so high-born, she will be looked on as an interloper, and if, as in this case, she happens to be poor and nameless, the bridegroom is regarded as a dupe and a fool, the bride is stigmatized as an adventuress. The valet was fully occupied that evening with preparations for the journey of the following day, and could find no time to call at Mr. Eversleigh's lodgings with his evil tidings. "'He'll hear of it soon enough, I dare say, poor unfortunate man,' thought Mr. Millard. The valet was right. In a few days the announcement of the baronet's marriage appeared in the Times newspaper, for though he had celebrated that marriage with all privacy, he had no wish to keep his fair young wife hidden from the world. On Thursday the fourth instant, at St. Mary's Church, Fulham, Sir Oswald Morton Vansittart Eversleigh, Baronet, to Honoria, daughter of the late Thomas Milford. This was all, and this was the announcement which Reginald Eversleigh read one morning as he dawdled over his late breakfast, after a night spent in dissipation and folly. He threw the paper away from him, with an oath, and hurried to his toilet. He dressed himself with less care than usual, for to-day he was in a hurry. He wanted at once to communicate with his friend, Victor Carrington. The young surgeon lived at the very extremity of the Maida Hill district, in a cottage, which was then almost in the country. It was a comfortable little residence, but Reginald Eversleigh looked at it with supreme contempt. "'You can wait,' he said to the hackney coachman. "'I shall be here in about a half an hour.' The man drove away to refresh his horses at the nearest inn, and Reginald Eversleigh strode impatiently past the trim little servant-girl who opened the garden gate, and walked, unannounced, into the miniature hall. Everything in and about Victor Carrington's abode was the perfection of neatness. The presence of poverty was visible, it is true, but poverty was made to wear its fairest shape. In the snug drawing-room to which Reginald Eversleigh was admitted, all was bright and fresh. White muslin curtains shaded the French window. Birds sang in gilded cages, of inexpensive quality but elegant design, and tall glass vases of freshly cut flowers adorned tables and mantelpiece. Sir Oswald's nephew looked contemptuously at this elegance of poverty. For him, nothing but the splendor of wealth possessed any charm. The surgeon came to him while he stood musing thus. "'Do you mind coming to my laboratory?' he asked, after shaking hands with his unexpected visitor. "'I can see that you have something of importance to say to me, and we shall be safer from interruption there.' "'I shouldn't have come to this fag end of Christendom if I hadn't wanted very much to see you. You may depend upon it, Carrington,' answered Reginald sulkily. "'What on earth makes you live in such an out-of-the-way hole?' I am a student, and an out-of-the-way hole, as you are good enough to call it, suits my habits. Besides, this house is cheap, and the rent suits my pocket. It looks like a doll's house, 
said Reginald contemptuously. "'My mother likes to surround herself with birds and flowers,' answered the surgeon, "'and I like to indulge any fancy of my mother's.' Victor Carrington's countenance seemed to undergo a kind of transformation as he spoke of his mother. The bright glitter of his eyes softened. The hard lines of his iron mouth relaxed. The one tender sentiment of a dark and dangerous nature was this man's affection for his widowed mother. He opened the door of an apartment at the back of the house and entered, followed by Mr. Eversleigh. Reginald stared in wonder at the chamber in which he found himself. The room had once been a kitchen, and was much larger than any other room in the cottage. Here there was no attempt at either comfort or elegance. The bare, whitewashed walls had no adornment but a deal-shelf here and there, loaded with strange-looking files and galley-pots. Here all the elaborate paraphernalia of a chemist's laboratory was visible. Here Reginald Eversleigh beheld stoves, retorts, alembics, distilling apparatus, all the strange machinery of that science which always seems dark and mysterious to the ignorant. The visitor looked about him in utter bewilderment. "'Why, Victor!' he exclaimed. "'Your room looks like the laboratory of some alchemist of the Middle Ages, the sort of man people used to burn as a wizard.' "'I am rather an enthusiastic student of my art,' answered the surgeon. The visitor's eyes wandered round the room in amazement. Suddenly they alighted on some object on the table near the stove. Carrington perceived the glance, and, with a hasty movement, very unusual to him, dropped his handkerchief upon the object. The movement, rapid though it was, came too late, for Reginald Eversleigh had distinguished the nature of the object, which the surgeon wished to conceal from him. It was a mask of metal, with glass eyes. "'So you wear a mask when you are at work, eh, Carrington?' said Mr. Eversleigh. "'That looks as if you dabble in poisons.' "'Half the agents employed in chemistry are poisonous,' answered Victor coolly. "'I hope there is no danger in the atmosphere of this room just now.' "'None whatever. Come, Reginald, I am sure you have bad news to tell me, or you would never have taken the trouble to come here.' "'I have, and the worst news—' "'My uncle has married this street-ballad singer.' "'Good. Then we must try to turn this marriage to account.' "'How so?' "'By making it the means of bringing about a reconciliation. "'You will write a letter of congratulation to Sir Oswald, "'a generous letter, in which you will speak of your penitence, "'your affection, the anguish you have endured "'during this bitter period of estrangement.' You can venture to speak freely of these things now, you will say, for now that your honoured uncle has found new ties, you can no longer be suspected of any mercenary motive. You can now approach him boldly, you will say, for you have henceforward nothing to hope from him except his forgiveness. Then you will wind up with an earnest prayer for his happiness. And, if I am not very much out in my reckoning of human nature, that letter will bring about a reconciliation. Do you understand my tactics? I do. You are a wonderful fellow, Carrington. Don't say that until the day when you are restored to your old position as your uncle's heir. Then you may pay me any compliment you please. If ever that day arrives, you shall not find me ungrateful. I hope not. 
and now go back to town and write your letter. I want to see you invited to Raynham Castle to pay your respects to the bride. But why so? I want to know what the bride is like. Our future plans will depend much upon her. Before leaving Lorimore Cottage, Reginald Eversleigh was introduced to his friend's mother, whom he had never before seen. She was very like her son. She had the same pale, sallow face, the same glittering black eyes. She was slim and tall, with a somewhat stately manner, and with little of the vivacity usual to her countrywomen. She looked at Mr. Eversleigh with a searching glance, a glance which was often repeated as he stood for a few minutes talking to her. Nothing which interested her son was without interest for her, and she knew that this young man was his chief friend and companion. Reginald Eversleigh went back to town in much better spirits than when he had left the West End that morning. He lost no time in writing the letter suggested by his friend, and, as he was gifted with considerable powers of persuasion, the letter was a good one. "'I believe Carrington is right,' he thought, as he sealed it, "'and this letter will bring about a reconciliation. It will reach my uncle at a time when he will be intoxicated with his new position as the husband of a young and lovely bride, and he will be inclined to think kindly of me and of all the world.' "'Yes, the letter is decidedly a fine stroke of diplomacy.' Reginald Eversleigh awaited a reply to his epistle with feverish impatience, but an impatience mingled with hope. His hopes did not deceive him. The reply came by return of post, and was even more favourable than his most sanguine expectations had led him to anticipate. "'Dear Reginald,' wrote the baronet, your generous and disinterested letter has touched me to the heart. Let the past be forgotten and forgiven. I do not doubt that you have suffered, as all men must suffer, from the evil deeds of their youth. You were no doubt surprised to receive the tidings of my marriage. I have consulted my heart alone in the choice which I have made, and I venture to hope that choice will secure the happiness of my future existence. I am spending the first weeks of my married life amidst the lovely solitudes of North Wales. On the 24th of this month, Lady Eversleigh and I go to Rainham, where we shall be glad to see you immediately on our arrival. Come to us, my dear boy, come to me, as if this unhappy estrangement had never arisen, and we will discuss your future together. Your affectionate uncle, Oswald Eversleigh, Royal Hotel, Bannerdoon, North Wales. Nothing could be more satisfactory than this epistle. Reginald Eversleigh and Victor Carrington dined together that evening, and the baronet's letter was freely discussed between them. "'The ground lies all clear before you now,' said the surgeon. "'You will go to Raynham, make yourself as agreeable as possible to the bride, win your uncle's heart by an appearance of extreme remorse for the past, and most complete disinterestedness for the future, and leave all the rest to me.' "'But how the deuce can you help me at Raynham? "'Time alone can show. "'I have only one hint to give you at present. "'Don't be surprised if you meet me unexpectedly "'amongst the Yorkshire hills and wolds, "'and take care to follow suit with whatever cards you see me playing. "'Whatever I do will be done in your interest, depend upon it. "'Mind, by the by, if you do see me in the north, "'that I know nothing of your visit to Raynham. I shall be as much surprised to see you, 
as you will be to see me. So be it. I will fall into your plans. As your first move has been so wonderfully successful, I shall be inclined to trust you implicitly in the future. I suppose you will want to be paid rather stiffly by and by, if you do succeed in getting me any portion of Sir Oswald's fortune. Well, I shall ask for some reward, no doubt. I am a poor man, you know, and do not pretend to be disinterested or generous. However, we will discuss that question when we meet at Raynham. End of chapter 6, part 1